So um, I've written a lot about cultural appropriation, and I, you know, I really want to know, Justin, what's your favorite way to culturally appropriate? <laughs> what's my? Oh man, that's a that's an interesting question. I've never thought about that before. What's something that I appropriate? Okay, I will routinely stand in line, long lines, mind you, for. Uh, for like bagels and coffee at this spot around the corner from my apartment. And from what I can tell, <laughs> that seems like a pretty white endeavor. There's a lot of white people <laughs> who stand in line over there. And maybe that's Oh, you're that. like stealing white valor. <laughs> exactly. Standing in line for bagels. That's exactly it. So I'm like, all right, maybe this is my uh this is my appropriating thing. I'll go out there with my um, you know, flannel shirt on. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> What about you? What's something that you appropriate on the low? I don't know how on the low this is because <laughs> I, I do this in public. But uh, one of my favorite things to perform at karaoke are like Shaggy songs, especially if it wasn't oh, damn. me. And I perform both as Shaggy and Rick Rock. <laughs> there's So there's no video of this anywhere? No, no. But I definitely do the Shaggy voice. Oh, and it's, damn. Look, it's, it's all about performance. I'm not making a joke out of it. I'm just trying to be accurate. Oh, yeah. No, you you care about the performance itself. That's why you're up the there. The art. Yeah, it's the art. It's the art. God, I wish I could see this. All right. I'm not going to ask you to do that now or anything like that. Just keep that in mind. So with that said, hello, people. This is the Extra Spicy Podcast. I am Justin Phillips. And I'm Solejo. On this episode, we speak with Irene Lee, a chef and co-founder of Maymay Restaurant in Boston. We don't really see white chefs uh, saying, like, you know, I'm going to open a Nigerian restaurant. And it's like, why do you guys know not to do that? <laughs> but you're not, like, you're not really sure why it's bad to do that with, like, Japanese food, for example. Irene talks to us all about cultural appropriation and the really interesting conversations she's had with white restaurateurs and chefs in Boston and elsewhere. She wrote about all of that in a story titled... Eight Totally Achievable Ways to Show Up for Racial Justice When You're White and Own an Asian Restaurant. You can find it at irenexiangli.medium.com or i-r-e-n-e-s-h-i-a-n-g-l-i.medium.com. This is an episode about cultural appropriation, which is... Uh, very funny, I think, for both you and I, because we've talked about it so much in the past, just in various ways uh, to various news outlets and everything. Um, and you made a really great piece about what white people who own AAPI restaurants can do in this moment of of great stress for the AAPI communities. Um and one thing that I found really interesting about it, and like we've talked about this before too, is um, it's always been a really frustrating conversation yeah. for us to have. Um, and yet it seems like people are listening all of a sudden. What do you think has changed? Well, I just want to say I think that I could hear in your voice that we were both sort of smiling to ourselves when you said what this conversation was about. <laughs> because, you know, in some ways, I think that for me as an Asian American, it's been an elephant in my room in, you know, working in this industry for so long. And I think that 
in the last few weeks, we've been able to take the conversation from, you know, what am I as a white chef allowed to do or what am I not allowed to do? And how is this, um, how is the accusation of cultural appropriation impinging on my freedom? Um, and, you know, the truth is it's not, right? Like, nobody's saying you should go to prison for what you're doing. Um, we're just saying, like, maybe you could be a little bit more thoughtful about it. Um, but that's not really what anyone wants to hear, I think. But right now, with the climate that we're in, I think people are listening. They are thinking about how to be respectful and how to be in relationship beyond just what they're, quote, allowed to do or not allowed to do. Yeah, I wonder, too, um, what's so hard about being thoughtful? I guess like <laughs> it seems like <laughs> the resistance to it has been so, I don't know, it doesn't seem that hard when you lay it out like that. Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I guess what I would say is, like, I think that so much of about cooking and um, and and food and restaurants is about like, just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> and I don't know that, like, chefs on the whole are really great at restraint. <laughs> um, and so I think for me, like, white chefs opening Asian restaurants definitely feels like a just because you can doesn't mean you should. <laughs> mm. So I, I guess this can be a question for both of you, essentially, because I, I do love the fact that you guys have written about this and talked about this in media in the past. But I'm curious about this, too, because it seems like like if I look at, at it from uh, look at white chefs and what they open from an African-American perspective, like if a white chef opens a business and incorporates a dish that has like African roots or something, completely rips it off, doesn't give credit where credit's due. If people come out after them, it seems like the response is faster as of late, I guess in recent years, even before the uh, last year's, you know, racial reckoning, but the response was faster than it would be if it was a white chef owning an Asian restaurant. Like over time, have you guys seen that? Like, do white chefs just drag their feet to respond to appropriation because it's an Asian restaurant? Yeah, I think that's such a great point. And like one of the thoughts that I've had in my head on this topic for a long time is like, you know, to white chefs, like, you guys know not to do this to black people. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. you know not to open, uh, like, a Ghanaian restaurant. <laughs> and, yeah. you know, yeah. the fact that uh, I think, you know, using um, cultural influences in a dish is sort of one thing that, that could mm -hmm. generate, you know, concern or harm. I think theming a whole restaurant around a culture mm. that you don't come from is on some other level. And like, yeah, we don't really see white chefs uh, saying like, you know, I'm going to open a Nigerian restaurant. And it's like, <laughs> why do you guys know not to do that? <laughs> but you're not like, you're not really sure why it's bad to do that with like Japanese food, for example. Right. And right. I think that in some way to me, it kind of like plays off the sort of model minority um, trope, which is like somehow it's respect that leads to appropriation or like reverence um, and confusing uh, appreciation with appropriation or, or not really oh, knowing where the line is there. Mm. That's interesting. Right. I mean, do you think, 
there's a spectrum between appreciation and appropriation, which is something that I'm sure you've been asked before, like, what's the difference? Um, and it, that seems to be a really interesting binary that's become really popular to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I think the challenge is that it's like it's not a spectrum, but like a Venn diagram, I guess. Like you can both appreciate and appropriate at the same time. Right. <laughs> to me, I always yeah. think appropriation like ends up on the table when there is some material um, benefit or deprivation uh, that comes from a certain action. So like making money off something definitely puts the question of appropriation on the table for me, even if there is like deep uh, appreciation or a, a phrase that I've seen used recently in uh, uh, in this conversation is uh, deep reverence. Um, even if there's reverence, you know, if there is money changing hands, if there are opportunities being provided or not provided, for me, that's when we kind of have to start talking about the power dynamic. Mm, right. I mean, it seems really odd to make money off of something that you revere that some and and that language which feels like you know like religious almost or spiritual it i think bringing the money part into it is really helpful for explaining like why reverence doesn't really mean anything in this context or i don't know maybe it does i think for me um Again, there's there's this way of kind of, you know, romanticizing Asian cultures um, and Asian food and Asian women um, that that all kind of falls into this same bucket in a way. Um, and so I think that like, I don't know, I think a lot about how the practice of yoga is um, how that exists in this country. Um, and like we could mm. talk for a long time about that, I'm sure. But um, <laughs> this idea that like you know, consuming um, another culture is something that we should all be allowed to do and therefore should do, you know, uh, at will to whatever extent we want. I think there's there's something to that that is very specific in white America's relationship to Asian-ness. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I wonder to, and this is... <laughs> I feel like this is such a tangent, but I, I'm so interested in like how this feels too for people. Yeah. But it seems like one of the ultimate kind of ways in which you feel like you've arrived is your consumability as a commodity. Mm. Right. Mm. You know, like when we think about media representation, for instance, like that you can buy a movie with a Southeast Asian lead in it from Disney. Like, does that mean something significant? Um, you know, it, it's... It, when you when you bring in this sort of commodification of it, it really colors the conversation in a very stark way, I think. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. One of the things that um, I heard when I was in conversation with um, a, a white owner of an Asian restaurant was um, – you know, this this owner had opened one of the very first kind of super high end Japanese restaurants um, in Boston. And, you know, she said, like, before we opened, a lot of people didn't really know that much about Japanese food. And, um, you know, I think that's probably true in some regards. I think also probably a lot of people who she didn't know <laughs> knew things about Japanese food. Um, but I do think that there is a kind of I don't know like a a, a missionary or like a, a savior mentality that like 
someone can go on vacation and then bring back a, an artifact of culture and then make it legible and consumable to um, to their own audience. And I think that, you know, that things exist because we can consume them is is totally like what underpins that. Mm. So one of the things that I always do with these conversations, like uh, especially when it comes to cultural appropriation, is think about it in time frames. I'm sure each one of us can remember the days where bringing this issue up to a white chef, they'd have been like, nah, nah, I'm not talking about this. Irene, like for you, has it gotten easier over a period? Like, is it harder? Is it still the same? Has it gotten better really quickly over the last year? Like, how have you seen it? Yeah, well, you know, speaking from my own experience, I have never tried to have this conversation before Mm. because I was scared, I think. And because I knew or I felt that I knew where the conversation would go, which is, you know, no, you can't. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. (laughs) Which is like so unproductive. Um, And, you know, I I believe that conflict can be productive, um, Mm -hmm. but I just didn't really have very much faith, I guess. And so, you know, with the recent violence and particular the violence in Atlanta, it felt like, okay, this is an opportunity for people to take this issue seriously. And so let's try it because if not now, then probably never. And, you know, there were some people who I like tagged on Instagram, who I reached out to, who I haven't heard from at all. Um, but there are folks who I've had great phone calls and email threads with who are engaging. And, you know, I think we'd have to ask them if they would have had this conversation in 2016. Um, mm-hmm. But for for my own part, I have always felt like, you know, I'm such a kind of uh, like a baby in the restaurant industry and I don't want to call anyone out. Mm. And so you just kind of, I just kind of let it be. And, you know, I did wonder to myself, like, are we ever going to be ready to have this conversation? Um, And maybe you can tell when reading the piece that I've been, like, writing it in my head for many years. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Um, for sure. But again, you know, it, it, I did wonder if it was, like, an elephant in the room that I would just live with forever. Um, And when the piece came out, it, it occurred to me that there are, lots of other Asian Americans um, who are asking that question too. So I think it would be prudent for us to kind of go down the list if you are game for that, Irene. Yeah, for Just sure. to like talk about why um, these are actionable items that you identified for cultural appropriation. Um, because I think also, you know, the piece is really funny, but it's also really mm-hmm. realistic in a way mm-hmm. that I think we have always struggled to articulate just like communally, mm-hmm. right? right? As people who talk about this topic a lot. Um, but let's start with item number one, uh, where we you ask people to state that they are white. Why is this a step? Yeah. I mean, when I saw the first round of kind of social media acknowledgments about the mass shooting in Atlanta, it felt really weird when white people were saying how terrible it was and that it was an act of white supremacy and they were kind of leaving themselves out of that Mm. um because like you know when we talk about white supremacy we all get implicated right whether we're Mm -hmm. white or uh you know i guess some people would say white adjacent but um that like 
that objectivity, quote unquote objectivity, I think is really unhelpful um, because we're not talking about the kind of racism that like hides under the bed. We're talking about the kind that lives inside of all of us Mm. and trying to, you know, bring it to the surface and bring it to light, I think requires white people saying, hey, I'm white. (laughs) And like, (laughs) it's just, it's incredible how many people have never thought of themselves in racialized terms because they're allowed to be the norm, which in this country is to be white. Yeah, that feels like such a basic thing mm-hmm. when you grow up already sort of racialized. And I think, you know, for many of us, we were reminded of that pretty quickly in our lives, pretty early on. Um, does it have, I mean, from the people that you've talked to who have kind of jumped into this all of a sudden, the white people, um, how have they responded to that? I think they've responded okay. Um, I definitely have talked to one person who um, has started referring to themselves as white um, in a way that they never have before. So I thought that yeah. was really interesting. Um, they they stumbled over the word whiteness a little bit on our last phone call, but it was really cool to hear. I think, um, I don't know if you've read that there, it's like a post or a tweet that it's a privilege to learn about racism rather than yeah. experience it. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's such a great way of just drawing awareness to that. Um, and so number two in the piece is talk about white supremacy and white privilege, um, which is, you know, uh, you can't do that if you don't admit that you're white. <laughs> and so, um, you know, to me, that's like, first, you have to recognize who you yourself are, and then you have to look at where that places you in the power structure. I guess the other thing I would say is like, some of the restaurants that I tagged or, you know, called out or called up or whatever we want to say, I got a lot of messages from people who said, oh, I thought that was owned by an Asian person. Oh, oh, interesting. And so, you know, uh, like if we're afraid of being performative, maybe we should talk about that. Um, but I think that like because we're not asking them to come out and say it, we're also just letting people think that these are Asian owned restaurants. And I don't think that's right. Right. I mean, what I find really interesting as a parallel in the writing world, too, is the use of the word we when people write stuff you yeah. know, about food or whatever. Um, I always have to ask, like, what is included in the we? What are the assumptions that are being made about us, whoever we might be, and who is outside of that? Um, and I think about those sorts of statements of solidarity that you mentioned, and the we sometimes feels... It sticks out. Yeah. I think one thing that is really interesting, you know, I've talked to folks who work in the industry whose bosses, you know, might have posted something with the kind of royal we. And then their employees are wondering, um, really? Like us? (laughs) Us we? (laughs) Or you we? Um, And so, yeah, I think that, you know, obviously social media is such a kind of contrived, boiled down piece of of how we present ourselves. But I think that there, you know, if we talk about the power dynamic within a given business, um, not knowing if you get to speak for yourself or if your boss can only speak for you um, is a really kind of confusing thing, especially right now. You're listening to the Extra Spicy Podcast. After a short break, Irene Lee will tell us a little bit about why white people are really shy to talk about race. (laughs) 
I'm Soleho, and we're back with Irene Lee. I find the third point, which is about raising awareness and money, really salient too, because, you know, because we've talked about how cultural appropriation is so much about profit and so much about how capitalism launders culture. Um, when you mention that, um, I, f- I would assume that you'd get the most resistance to that, to asking restaurants to raise money for AAPI organizations. But yeah, you know, I'm still sort of waiting to see if if this point goes anywhere. Um, mm-hmm. There were some restaurants that did kind of like a one day uh, like or, the, you know, this weekend um this percentage of profit will go towards this cause. Um, I mean, if restaurants made a lot of money, which they don't, <laughs> this could be a different conversation, right? Um, but, you know, my friend Tracy Chang said to me, um, like, this isn't monopoly. Like, don't let them think that they landed on community chest, they got some bad luck and you called them out and they just have to cough up some cash before they can go, you know, continue on, um, you know, running their businesses and, and profiting from a, a culture that they do not, uh, you know, either take seriously or, or really feel that they're part of. Um, so I think that what I'm looking for and hoping for is the kind of sustained, um, like, I think I wrote bake it in. Like, how would mm-hmm. you bake mm-hmm. this in to the entire concept of your restaurant or your menu? Um, and that is, like, I think a lot less sexy than doing a one-weekend fundraiser. But I think that it speaks to the idea that a business is continually benefiting uh, from a, a culture whose food they're, quote, borrowing or appropriating. And so to continually give back is, in my mind, the only way to kind of start uh, to to make both sides whole. Mm. You know, and one of the f- things that I, well, out of all the things, one of the things that I really, really love about the first three points is that they aren't easy. Like on this list, like so a white person stating that they're white isn't an easy thing for them to do because it's probably something they've never had to think about like we talked about. Um, Talk about white supremacy and white privilege is a task for them because that also isn't something that they've ever probably talked about and they know how problematic it is. And then doing actual work of raising awareness and money. Like I feel like you sprinted into this list with three things that are big steps that they need to immediately take. And so I was curious, like for you, as you like mold this over and we're figuring out how you wanted to present it and talk about it, like did you is it really important to make sure like the like every step should be a hard step, but you definitely want the the first couple to be like, hey, I mean business and this is what you can do immediately. Like, did you think about that in putting this together? I did. I think for me, the first three steps are like the, the groundwork for mm. any racial equity work that is going to happen. And, you know, if if a restaurant owner uh, takes steps four through eight, but they don't say like, hey, I'm white and I've benefited from white privilege and white supremacy, then it makes everything else kind of empty. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of an order of operations in my mind. And I think, you know, what I liked about writing this way is that they're not easy tasks, but they're kind of simple. <laughs> um, <laughs> right. Like, right. it's not really hard to know if you've done it or not. <laughs> And, um, you know, one of the things that's been so interesting is that after I put this piece out, I I had a number of people, a number of chefs call me and say, 
what do I do? <laughs> and mm. I was kind of like, I'm glad we're talking. I did write a list. <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, let's go back to that. But even with a, a roadmap, um, I think that some people will read this and just be at a loss. Mm. And so I tried to write it in a way that would be so simple um, that you couldn't say you didn't get it. Um, but some people still won't. So that's okay. <laughs> but I see that it's like, this is a really stressful conversation to have. I actually, I met with the social media manager of one of the restaurants that I called out on Instagram. Um, we had a great conversation. He was so sweet. And at the end I said like, I'm sorry, you know, I probably scared the shit out of you <laughs> when I tagged you and you got that. Um, and you know, I know you're just the social media manager. So, you know, Again, my hope is that like the the conflict can be generative and not destructive. Mm. Your next point then I feel like is it, it leads into the generative aspect of what you're trying to do, which is, you know, number four, support your AAPI employees. And support is such a broad term as well. You know, it could be someone sending you a text and saying, I support you or I'm thinking of you, yeah. which is, I've gotten a lot of those in the yeah. past couple of weeks and I do not know what to do with them. Um, or it could be financial, right? Like giving people extra time off or giving them a bonus or something like what does that encapsulate? I think for me, you know, in my experiences an Asian American and the way that we are um, raised in our families and socialized in school, um, you know, there's a lot of like head down, mouth shut, um, just show up and do your job. And um, and speaking out or making trouble is like not part of the equation, I think. Um, and that's both, I think, has to do with our, our kind of cultures of origin as well as how Asian Americans are are positioned in this country. Um, but I, I did speak with um, folks who worked for white owners of Asian restaurants who said, you know, I've been fighting this battle internally. Um, like my boss wanted to throw a party with a theme that I thought was really messed up and I oh, talked yeah. them out of it. Um, and, you know, that work is invisible, but it's huge. <laughs> It took a lot for them to do that. And I also think that, you know, we really are all on the same team. And an employee who, you know, goes rogue or uh, tries to cancel you on social media, like that wasn't their first choice. Mm. Their first choice was to talk to you. And if you weren't really listening, you you know, you might not have noticed. Um, and I did say to some, you know, uh, restaurant owners, like, your employees probably have feelings about this that they haven't shared with you. And if you don't want them to share them publicly, maybe you should ask them directly. Um, mm -hmm. I suggested to some people that they do exit interviews or even interview past employees who have since left the company um, to make space for those experiences. Um, and, you know, I think that's kind of a real motivator. Like, <laughs> get to them first. You probably want to get ahead of that. Um, and so I also had an employee uh, reach out to me and say, my boss just called me and I never thought we would have that talk. Um, so I'm seeing that there is a motivation um, that is, you know, maybe self-serving, but ultimately serves the whole, which is to allow these conversations to actually take place and to not be so scared of them that we try to just kind of push them away. 
Yeah, you know, I, I'm trying to think, and I don't I think in my history of working at restaurants, no one has ever asked me why I left a place. Yeah. Which is so weird in retrospect. And you must have really interesting reasons, right? <laughs> like, I can only imagine. Um, but yeah, I mean, the, the exit interview, um, speaking as an employer, uh, it is very scary and it can be extremely painful. Um, but, you know, it, it's like how you want a guest to tell you what went wrong before they go to Yelp. Mm-hmm. And by mm-hmm. the same token, you want a staff member to tell you before they go tell everyone else who might consider working in your business. Yeah, I would think. I mean, it's I feel like there's so much turn and burn in the industry that people just sort of wash their hands and then focus on rehiring or or just filling whatever gap they can. Um, I think the idea of thinking about restaurant employees as anything but transient is still really new, I think, for a lot of workplaces. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Your next point is about supporting immigrant-owned restaurants, which is, okay, to me, like the obvious sort of devil's advocate question would be, why should they support their competitors? Yeah, well, I think that um, depending on uh, what kind of devil's advocate I'm speaking to, um, (laughs) I think on the one hand, I would say, oh, you know, you're not competition because your audiences are different. Like, if you're selling the same food for four times the price because you have, like, low lighting and, like, dark mahogany paneling, (laughs) then, like, you're not competing. Um, (laughs) But I also think that, um, you know, to take a more balanced approach to that question, I think that we all benefit from diners who are more knowledgeable. And, you know, if that means that they have to experience lots of different versions of a dish, like, I think that's great. Um, you know, anytime a certain cuisine or even, uh, I don't know, a specific dish kind of has a renaissance, I feel like everybody wins, or at least they should. Um, so to me, it's all about, uh, I don't know, kind of the rising tide that like the smarter our consumers are, the better it is for all of us. Because I think there are so many, you know, mom and pop immigrant owned restaurants that serve amazing food. And like maybe they have a different menu in a different language. (laughs) Um, And and all you're going to order is like the pad thai. But like imagine (laughs) if there were a chef who you knew and you respected and they could help you understand how to order like all the most exciting dishes from that little mom and pop restaurant. I mean, again, it's kind of this idea that like you only exist if someone can buy you. Um, But, you know, (laughs) if if, as long as we're talking about (laughs) consumerism, um, I think it's worth saying that like these chefs have so much power to to open up their customer base for everyone. And, you know, that's part of why. I spoke up in the first place because on the night or the day after the shooting in Atlanta, it wasn't the silence of chefs that bothered me so much as it was that they went about their normal business promoting themselves. Mm. That was what really upset me. Um, And, you know, to a certain extent, I can understand wanting to, like, take your time, do your research, polish your shoes, trim your split ends, like whatever. I I get that. But like you couldn't have just stopped selling yourself for 24 hours. 
So, Irene, can you, I mean, I I don't know if you want to name anyone, but I would love for you to describe in a little bit more detail what you mean, um, like the kinds of posts that you were seeing. Yeah. Well, I saw a number of restaurants that, you know, didn't post anything about the violence and um, just kept posting about, like, tonight's cocktail special. Uh. I also, you know, don't love the premise that a business would take time to research and learn and listen before saying anything. Um, And, you know, Jamie Bissonette, he and I talked on the phone and he said, like, you know, if I've got your back, I'm going to come fight for you right away. I'm not going to sit around polishing my gun. Um, And, you know, (laughs) that was maybe not the most apt metaphor for the time. But, um, like, I really feel that on some level. And I think that waiting and listening and educating yourself uh, is an excuse for being afraid. And the truth is, like, I think it's okay to be afraid. Like, it is scary. You know, nobody wants to get canceled. Um, And I don't know. I just feel like if you are a well-known chef, if you've won James Beard Awards, if you are on the Food Network every week, like, take the risk and just say something. Um, Because we're watching. Like, we're waiting to see what you do and what you say. Um, And I don't know. I think that, like... There's such a premium placed on humility, and that ends up being a way to kind of, like, shirk responsibility on some level. Mm. Like, do you mean the idea that, you know, I'm white, I feel like I don't have a place in this conversation, and I just won't say anything? Yeah, I think I think it's that. Um, like, you know, my voice is not the voice you need to hear right now. Um, right. Like, I don't know. I kind of think it really is, like, especially. And so the silence feels hurtful. Mm. But I think for some people, they say, oh, I'm not a public figure or like, oh, I'm, you know, I'm not that successful. And um, I don't know. It just it feels a little bit like a cop out. I feel like this this idea that businesses are going to post about racial inequality has it's new, right? Like really the peak was those really regretful black squares, for instance, in <laughs> oh 2020, God. that mm-hmm. summer. Um, and a lot of places posting statements of solidarity or or not, um, with the protests around the killing of George Floyd in Minnesota. Um does it feel I mean, it felt so weird at the time. Um and Personally, I didn't really get it Um, because, of course, like then we had that sort of second wave of reckoning where people who worked at these businesses, for instance, restaurants, spoke up and said, like, you posted this thing, but you're extremely anti-Black in my experience, Mm -hmm. right? Um, And I think that has almost scared a lot of businesses into saying nothing um, for this new round. Um, uh, How do we – I mean – I guess I'm I'm wondering, like, how do we get people to take that risk, even though there is a very real, you know, um, possibility that that they will be called out? Yeah. I mean, for me, this this is this perfectly captures uh, the next point that we were going to cover, which is like, just be honest. Mm-hmm. Um, if you only say what's true, 
then no one's going to say that you're being performative. And like, I get why you would want to say, I have always been um, like a staunch bastion for racial equality. (laughs) But like, if you aren't sure that's true, then just don't say it. Just say like, I am having a lot of feelings right now. And I don't think that the police should kill black people. Like, you know, not that exactly, maybe, but just say what's true. And you might have someone say like, hey, you're taking up space and you shouldn't be doing that. Or you might have someone say, hey, you you say this, but I know from your actions that that's not really true. And like, yeah, that that sucks if that happens. But, you know, if you were wrong, say you were wrong and do better next time. I just think like, I don't know. I, th- I feel like in the restaurant industry, we're so good at saying, like, the only way you learn is by fucking it up. <laughs> but mm-hmm. when it comes to being, like, direct and honest, <laughs> we're really not okay with that. Like, we want to be right all the time. We want to, uh, like, spring forth uh, from the forehead of Zeus as, like, a fully formed <laughs> racial equity Athena. Um <laughs> And, like, no one – that's not how it happens. Like, you start – you have to crawl before you can walk. Right. I mean, I think that's also why we encounter the we're listening and learning umbrella so often because it's just vague enough um, to encapsulate, like, yeah, we're imperfect, but also it doesn't really put – make them accountable for having to do anything, which I find really funny. Yeah, definitely. And, I mean, I think that, like – Again, like I, I get the listening and learning and I, I think I've been there and posted that myself. Um, and <laughs> I, I'm not going to say that I was right to do that. I don't know if anyone can be right or wrong um, to share in their own, you know, on their own social media channels. Um, but I think that I don't know. I think we just have to be honest with ourselves and saying like, I'm probably going to mess this up because I'm a white person who's never thought about whiteness before. Like, that's okay. It's okay. We know. Like, we know you're not an expert (laughs) at this. You've probably made it really clear already. Um, And, you know, for me, I will say, like, I, I am gratified by the baby steps that are being taken. Um, I don't expect everyone (laughs) to be um, because it can be frustrating. Um, as a, a person of color who is trying to activate white people to get involved in this conversation. It can be frustrating, but it does take time. Um, I, I joked with like someone who commented on an Instagram post, you know, I, I went to prep school to learn how to counsel white people about this. <laughs> um, and, you know, it's a joke, but it's also true, right? Because I get how much of a process this is. Um, And so I want to be with these folks in the process. I don't want to just demand that they come out on the other side saying the right thing all the time. I mean, if they did, that would be great. But (laughs) (laughs) I think we have to be realistic. On that note, thank you so much, Irene, for talking to us. It's been so instructive. And I hope that all the restaurateurs and chefs and just diners listening to this podcast have learned a lot. Thank you so much, Soleil and Justin. And I hope we get to continue this conversation. I hope this isn't the end. And Irene told us she really means that. 
She wants to hear from you. So you can find her on Instagram and Medium at Irene Shang Lee. That's I-R-E-N-E-S-H-I-A-N-G-L-I. Thanks again to Irene Lee for being in conversation with us and to King Kaufman for producing this episode. If you're enjoying Extra Spicy, please share it with a friend and give it a rating on Apple Podcasts. And remember to send us any questions or voice memos you may have about food, life, or anything else for our Dear Spicy Advice segment at extraspicy at sfchronicle.com. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.